So when I was 25, I decided that there were some things that I wanted to work on about myself before I turned 30. And what I've tried to do since then is work on these themes. And four times a year, I sit down with my partner now, and I, I think about what progression I've made on those themes. In this episode, I mentioned The Family Tree. You can subscribe to that podcast, which will be starting in the autumn on iTunes. Just put The Family Tree in. There's a couple of teasers available now, and I'll put one at the end of this episode. www.thefamilytree.co.uk is the place to find everything about it. And over there, you'll also find a link to the Patreon account, which has a kind of teaser video in it as well. But it also gives you the information of how to sign up and fund the show as the show goes out it's a little bit like crowdfunding but instead of building up to one big thing it's you pay per episode to support the show so if you enjoy getting better acquainted and you want to hear the spin-off the sequel the fictional show or is it that will be coming out in the autumn do go over there and subscribe and sign up to patreon and all of those things and start spreading the word about it if you like the teaser share that around that would be really really helpful understand my own sexual being? How do I express that to other people? What is identity? Uh, I think everyone on the planet, if they have the luxury to, gets to think about these subjects. I have the utmost respect for people like you who take a stand and express something truly real in front of a bunch of people. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better, better, better acquainted with you. Today we're getting better acquainted with Jen. Hello, Jen. Hi, Dave. How are you? I'm good. Yeah, I'm good. It's interesting saying Jen because my partner's called Jen and that's kind of like my, my, my central understanding of that name. Yeah. And so it's, uh, it's interesting to, to speak to a completely different Jen. So yeah, we're recording this in Foyle's Cafe uh, in uh, central London, uh, which is why there's background sound of uh, a cafe. I I guess the first question is, how do you know me? So I know you thanks to Spark. I got involved in Spark probably three plus years ago. Um, I think the first show I went to was a Hackney Night, and I saw you hosting. Right. I thought you were really cool. And my clearest memory of you is uh, the Risk Show. Oh, right. Wow. And the story you told. Yeah, that's quite a clear memory <laughs> to have of me. It was a great first impression of, of like what I know of you. Uh, but it really just made me feel like you'd be a great person to hang out with. And, if I can say this... The, the way I get involved in Sparks is usually through the Xmas show. Yeah. And I love when you come because I like the energy that you bring and the great listening that you do to people who are there. Oh, that's very nice. No, it's true. See, I get really frustrated, actually. I mean, not much in Spark. I love Spark. But I do get frustrated sometimes when I can sense little pockets in the audience of people not quite listening properly to people's stories. It always frustrates me physically if, if it's like another person who's told a story and yeah, then they're yeah. talking at the same time as someone else is telling a story. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, yeah. that's a bit. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't. I, I try not to judge people in general, but uh, at the same time, I, I, I wish that people would listen yeah. more. 
although I'm not always good at listening myself and maybe I judge people harshly because uh, because I, I judge myself harshly and if, if people have got qualities that I see as mine I, I generally much more harsh on them I'm the same uh, way <laughs> I'm the same way yeah I mean and that's the thing so we know each other through Spark yeah. and I've been impressed with the stuff that I've seen of you do at Spark you did a, a night very little well you did a, a <laughs> night that really kind of stuck in my memory a lot you kind of uh, produced a night at Exmouth Market Body and Soul yeah. uh, with a group of I guess young people of colour from the local community yeah. kind of faith it was kind of a faith based the group I think I don't know some yeah, of the, yeah. or at least some of the some of the people telling the stories had faith that's true um, yeah they, they were all either infected or affected by HIV that's right that's right yeah 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 and it was exactly it was about HIV that's again another a big topic that I think people don't talk about and yeah. those those in fact it was interesting as well that the night that you produced of that like they didn't all like necessarily even talk about anything to do with yeah. uh, HIV yeah. and I thought that was really great um, I, when I did the sex worker stories night I encouraged the storytellers to, to tell any story yeah. um, because they were sex workers and they don't get to tell their stories generally but yeah. they don't necessarily want to tell stories about sex work yeah. they've got other parts of their personalities and I guess you, you were doing a similar thing with that night so it really I, I was impressed with it no cool and I have to say sex worker night is my favourite night of Spark <laughs> ever I thought it was one of the coolest events ever yeah, it was. It. I thought it was an amazing night. I mean, I don't really get to take much credit for it, to be honest, because, I mean, it was a, a different person than me hosting it. The, the storytellers were all telling their stories, and we didn't even get to, to work with very many of them on their stories beforehand, so they were oh, really? mostly just telling their stories the way they would tell them without any kind of spark coaching, which yeah. I think... Is, is valuable in many ways although I, I'm not saying that coaching isn't great and we do good coaching and, yeah. and you can get a lot from that too I've, I've benefited from coaching so Definitely. I'm not against it but the thing is we know each other through Spark yeah. um, but, and we both are interested in storytelling yeah. but we don't really know very much at <laughs> all about each other right? No I'm excited to learn about you Yeah No no, no that's okay um, Yeah I've got like a, a loose connection in my headphones that suddenly made the sound go really loud and made me go oh am I recording at too loud a volume probably uh, so I'm going to go down in volume and listeners will judge me accordingly uh, yeah it's hard when you're trying to monitor and have a conversation yeah, oh, and yeah. worry about sound quality but not want to be distracted by that so that like the most important thing is for us to have a conversation um, and so yeah. you know so, so I used to be um, I used to be a journalist a video journalist and um, I, I, I understand your pain right now because your job is not only to produce a great quality sound, yeah, but which actually, I very rarely do. <laughs> I bet you do great, um, but also to make sure you're getting the best out of your subject. It's yeah. such a challenge. And myself as well, yes. because this show's not just about, I mean, it, it is about listening to people, and I think that's a really important part of conversation, but it's also about talking. And, and I think the way that you can get stuff from people to find out who they are is by sharing something of yourself too yeah. because if you don't do that people feel very exposed yeah, and they're, yeah. they're, 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 why would they want to share something with you uh, if, if you don't share something with them although ironically we're both sharing with loads of people who we don't know uh, <laughs> out there so it's kind of like a, an exercise in trying to make authenticity in a slightly unauthentic uh, <laughs> between you and uh, I it's yeah, authentic right. Right? yeah right and true trust is built when people are being honest among each other in a right. conversation. Right, I think so too. And yeah. I think also, I mean, it's it's so valuable to hear that, to hear people building trust. It helps 
an audience to build trust with us, but yeah, also, yeah. you know, us in life to, to build trust with other people if we share our own experiences and kind of are truthful about ourselves. I mean, I think there's a lot of like, quite like a lot of people are scared of revealing their personal life yeah. stories, and yeah. I understand why, because yeah. the world isn't safe for personal stories in lots of ways but I think the more of us who can and the more of us who do it kind of makes it safer for other people to share their stories and since I tick most of the boxes of privilege I I, I feel like it's at least my my duty to to share my own real experience rather than uh, presenting some fake version of humanity like that's what I see when I see people like me on TV I see a fake version of humanity that doesn't correspond with my lived experience so I can only imagine how it, how it is for people who don't look like me, who aren't men, uh, feel about their representation. So that's me uh, spouting on about my views around oh, that, um, good, good where I feel. could be listening to your views. But I mean, <laughs> I guess that's how sometimes conversation goes. But yeah, we don't know each other. No, no, we don't know each other. But I like you. <laughs> yeah. On the outside, you look awesome. Right. And, and I you actually, too. you have a strong commitment to purple. Most times I, I see you. I do have a strong is that, is that a Is that a thing for most of your life, purple? Or is that new? Or? It's, it's something that I think I've always liked purple for uh, since I was a kid. Uh, my favourite colour used to be violet at school. Um, yeah. Although I think... To a certain extent, that was because I hadn't fully understood the gradations of purple. I think uh, violet's close to my favourite colour, but it's something a little bit... It's a bit more deep. Like, the, the kind of purple that I've got on is kind of got, like, light shade, but with a bit of... I don't know. It's not quite violet. What my, is the ultimate colour. purple of your dreams? What's, the, what's your absolute favourite purple? What's the word to use? I don't have it. I don't have it, because I don't think that the exact shade that I like has a no word. No way! I don't think so. Isn't that nice? Yeah. You like a thing that doesn't have a word. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I was watching the Hunger Games films uh, yesterday, weirdly, and one of the things in that is that Peter's color, favorite color is orange, but like orange, like a sunset orange, not like any kind of orange that we think of when we hear the word orange. And I think that's kind of right for me yeah. and purple. Yeah. But that said, like, yeah, it was a thing for me as a kid. And then I guess I stopped sort of feeling as comfortable expressing my alternative versions of masculinity as I grew up. And then when I started doing a show more recently about that, I fully like went, right, it's been building for a few years, I've been getting more and more into purple. In some ways, I'm a bit scared of, of being appropriative with purple because purple is such a, a colour of the LGBTQIA community. I don't want to take from other people. But at the same time, I really identify with purple. So that's my it's my colour but it's also a lot of other things that are much more important and bigger than me but at least you own what yeah. it is for yourself which yeah. is so cool well I think so yeah and I guess it, and it also in some ways it is it does represent me rejecting certain qualities of masculinity but I um, like that you that you've like moved in that direction there's clearly a chapter in your life and you said yes I'm going to start yeah. thinking about my authentic self and embracing the qualities purple or whatever yeah. that signify that yeah I like that that's the cool thing about you as an artist yeah, and I think is that a word I can use? To yeah, you can you? use that. Okay. That's fine. I'm comfortable with that. Like again, I think people who are uncomfortable with the word artist, some of that's through class um, okay. issues, and I understand why why those might be because people who are called artists don't seem to speak for everyone and okay. don't seem to represent everyone. But I also think there's a big chunk of like kind of fear of uh, again. It's I think fear of using the word artist about yourself is kind of fear of saying I'm an emotional authentic person yeah because um, I think we're all artists yeah I, agree. I don't think it's just artists who are artists right right um, it's more than a job description isn't it yeah yeah right and <laughs> 
Yeah, this is interesting. It's, 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 it's super interesting when I'm talking to people who I don't know very much, particularly people who are interested in stories, and particularly people who've been journalists in the past, because it's, it's like people are listening to will I be seduced into just talking about myself um, because the but person speaking to me is good at it. To me, yeah, so. no, well, you're interesting to me. And I don't know much about you because, yeah, you, you, I know sure, you're into yeah. stories. I know that you have kind of... And it's interesting that the things you've so far said are interesting about me yeah. are, um, you know, my most vulnerable and open and complicated moments. Like the the listeners should know if they haven't heard the Risk uh, Club story, it's a story about me. Well, primarily, it's a story about me feeling ugly and coming to a, a different position around feeling ugly. But it's also a story about me going to a, a sex club <laughs> uh, and being non-monogamous and... Um, yeah, yeah, being naked and having sex and all sorts of which things that I really don't feel comfortable doing. But you told in yeah, front of a group of strangers, which is so, which is something I so admire that risk taking about you. Yeah, well, it was a big moment for me yeah. um, to do that in an audience and and have them on my side. Yeah, like I didn't know they would yeah. go that way as well. I didn't know, and I, I think there's so many ways you can tell stories if you do feel yeah. complicated about sex that because yeah. you kind of I, I've told that story after that and, and it's not gone as well do you think it was because you were in the risk environment yes okay. I think yeah. it's because the audience were there for, for, the, risk, for that yeah. they wanted risky stories they kind of were yeah. down with sexual content yeah. but I think also I knew I wouldn't be judged like as much like I knew there were people who wouldn't judge me in that room yeah. even if some might and so I felt able to present it in a way that didn't judge it myself yeah. but when I talked about it after that I've often sort of put the stigma in without knowing no, it into you. the way I was framing it and then people can't help but treat it like it's stigmatised rather than like it's empowering yeah. which is I guess what I it was a story about empowerment I find the word empowering empowering to be suspect in some ways it sometimes can gloss over yeah, things and, and ignore things but I do think it's valuable as well and I and I even middle class white men sometimes don't feel empowered in the world totally and, particularly around topics of sex yeah <laughs> Which is, a, is a, if, I, if I could give a bridge, is a definitely a thing that I think about a lot. Something that I like to mull over in my little world is how do I understand my own sexual being? How do I express that to other people? What is identity? Uh, I think everyone on the planet, if they have the luxury to, gets to think about these subjects. I have the utmost respect for people like you who take a stand and express something truly real in front of a bunch of people. Particularly, well, I love... I loved the Risk show because it felt like a space that anyone could say what they really wanted to say. And yet, it still seemed pretty terrifying to get up there, so major kudos to you for doing that. Yeah, well, I was mostly worried about would people agree with me that, uh, that Miss Piggy was uh, a, a, sec- <laughs> a sexy uh, Muppet, um, because I thought that, that that was very important to kind of clarify. I felt very kind of... Com- the, the, pl- the areas I feel kind of complicated about was that Kevin was giving me really good notes of like include dialogue and include descriptions right but I feel complicated describing women I feel complicated uh, including other people's dialogue Uh, that feels appropriate like appropriating in some ways or am I representing them right Right. and also the only way I could include their dialogue was to talk about feminism and I feel weirdly as a man who constantly talks about feminist issues uh, I do feel weird to publicly say I'm a a feminist or in, in fact in that case I was judging another person in fact a woman's feminism to not be to my own 
uh, agreements. Right. And so that's a really, I think, a really unsafe space for me. Um, so it was great to do it in a space that was allowed to be unsafe and see how that, that went. And I might have like gone and listened back and cringed, but uh, I, I don't. I think it's one of the it's best really things good. I've ever done. Um, did you walk up the stage immediately feeling that? Or did yeah. Comments? Oh, that's yeah. really cool, man. <laughs> and people came up to me and yeah. said a lot of really nice things. Like, it, it's been the highest density of... I've had experiences similar to that that I've ever experienced. And it wasn't just from men as well. It was women as well who were saying, yes, that resonated with my life. Um, so cool. Yeah. And you're attracted to storytelling. I don't yeah. Have you told stories at Spark? I've only told one at Spark to kind of introduce... Well, yeah because I wanted to. I need to force myself to get up there more, but I am naturally more of a listener than a teller. So, and I take immense joy in listening to true stories and ideally facilitating that. And there are chapters in my life where I've done that more thoughtfully than others, but I do, I do need to get on stage and tell more stories. For right. sure. It's, a, it's an important life goal for me. Right. So the second question I ask everybody is, what do you do now? Yeah. So, um, so now I work for a company that makes medicine for people who live with HIV. Um, and I uh, am involved in the communications for that company. And it's, it's, been, it's really eye-opening, and I've, I've learned so much from this experience. And pr- everything I've done prior to this job has mainly been in storytelling in a formal sense. So through journalism or documentary. Uh, and yeah. So, yeah. so when did storytelling come into your life? Wow, great question. Um, uh, when I was, most of my birthdays as a child, my parents gave me a small, a very small budget, six months ahead of my birthday, wherein I could design a movie set for the day of my birthday and bring all my friends in to perform a film that I would create, obviously star and direct, if it was my birthday after all. But I think as a very young kid, I got, I was enamored with crafting the full complete story of a, of a person or of, of people and having full control, creative control of that. And as I got older, I became more and more interested in fact of just relinquishing all control and learning to listen and embrace a story uh, as it unfolds around me. So more documentary kind of approaches to storytelling. Right, interesting. But yeah, so pro- pro- most of my life has been, I'd like to think that I've been thinking about storytelling. Right, so you trans... trans- Kind of, you've, yeah, transitioned from fictional narratives <laughs> yeah. to more What's documentary. Going on? Yeah. And I mean, that's interesting to me. In the, I guess I've done that a little to a certain extent. Yeah. Like my my background is in theatre, in, in creating stories. Uh, although now I'm sort of now I find myself in this kind of more documentary uh, yeah, documenting do, space. Yeah. I I'm also scared that I'm going to get trapped here and not be able to get back to fiction. So at least I'm sort of I'm my my next podcast project coming out in uh, the autumn is going to be a fiction podcast. Very so cool. That's be, and we've been recording that this year. It's going to be really exciting. Do you find that your fiction or your thoughts around fiction are stronger because of the work you do in reality? Shall yeah, I say? definitely. I don't even think there's a distinction that's really valuable between the two different uh, genres. Apart from it's important to because both of them I think talk about truth. It's important that's to true. know when they're not fully true in inverted commas so I think it's it would be irresponsible to frame fiction as non-fiction it would be irresponsible probably in some ways to to do it the other way around as well Um, but it's but apart from that they are essentially I think in many ways the same thing 
people are really trying to get to something true. That's true. I completely um, agree more. And, you know, there's different values in both those things. And I, I guess, as, as tends to be the case for me, the more I work in different genres, the more I, I can never not go back to that genre. I just have more things to to then feel like I'm not doing like you, you know like music like I can't not go back to music I can't not go back to playwriting I can't not go back to fiction like they're, they're all great like the more I find like comic books all of these things it's like I want to do all of these things so how do you uh, commit to the next thing what do you that's really well, I don't know I don't know they just happen I, I, okay. to a certain extent I think life is a little bit like creating a, a narrative in that in some ways you write it and in some ways it writes you and I don't think I just have to be whatever comes along I'll grab but after a while I'll feel homesick for the thing I'm not doing and then find a way of trying to get that into my life and that's what's happened with this like shall I call it fictional next chapter like the next project this podcast you're talking about for the fall well with that it came it's become a a thing where my partner who's co-writing it and producing it with me and me both wanted to do a thing together. Yeah. She had certain things that would be useful to her, like she's a writer, but she doesn't have a profile. Um, I have a bit of a profile, but I, it's not for fiction. She's a fiction writer. So there's a lot of things that we yeah. kind of come together to make this uh, happen. It was kind of serendipitous, and it grew up out of getting better acquainted as well. It's a spin-off. I'm playing myself. Uh, it's a fictional version <laughs> oh, of me. very cool. It's kind of like... Now everyone's decided that what I'm about is authenticity and truth. I thought I would completely spin that on its head. Um, but yeah, anyway, enough about me. Sorry, I'm sorry, definitely sorry. falling into that, no, that no, trap. No. You've, I want to hear about that character you're building, but maybe later. Well, maybe later, because yeah, I mean, so you've transitioned between fiction and, and sure. into non-fiction. Yeah, I mean, what's, yeah. have you, or is, are they both still there for you, or like... Gosh, um, I think I spend... Sadly, I spend not as much time as I'd like to being um, t- documenting as I would as um, as I would like to right. nowadays. Um, but I, I think the transition from just being a very small girl um, with lots of toys, <laughs> physical people to put on a set, or just you know my dolls. Uh, I just feel like now I, I've really, as I got older, the world hit me, and I realized there were just so many things to. Uh, as you say, uncover when it comes to truth, right? Which I think is really beautiful, right? At times, yeah. Well, that's the thing as well. I mean, yeah, it's easy to think that, yeah, documentary in some ways can be about finding out things that you could never have imagined, whereas yeah. fiction is a, can only be what you can imagine. That's true. And so, it, yeah. th- I guess there is that very, very big distinction between fiction and to contradict myself, uh, no. which I constantly <laughs> do because that's what being a human being is. That's true. Uh, yeah. So, one of the things when we talked about, like, what would you be interested in talking about? Yeah, yeah. You said working on yourself, which <laughs> yeah. I, I was like, wow, that's practically the the theme tune of the song, <laughs> of the song of the of the podcast. Yeah, the theme song. I thought you would find that a good thing to talk about. Yeah. So, shall I just start? Do. When I was so, <laughs> um, so when I was twenty five, I decided that there were some things that I wanted to work on about myself before I turned 30. So I called them my life goals to 30, and I have four of them. And what I've tried to do since then is work on these themes, and and four times a year, I sit down with my partner now, and I I think about what progression I've made on those themes. So do you want to talk about them? Yeah, go for it. (laughs) What are the themes? Okay, I'll talk about the one I've done. I feel like I've done. When I was 25... Um, 
I could not say with any with any validity that I didn't do anything that I didn't want to do. So I I, I lived by I relatively lived by impulse. I ate when I wanted to eat. Uh, I slept where I wanted to sleep for the most part. Like I did the things that interest me, um, and there was nothing that felt. I never did something that was beyond my physical reach. Um, I needed to test myself and prove to myself that I have the the diligence and uh, and the ambition to to do something that that I could not imagine I could achieve. Um, and the goal, a very arbitrary goal, but a goal that I set myself was. In no way did I think I could ever run a marathon. I had never run before in my entire life. Um, I hated the concept of it. I had no physical um, structure to my days, nor had I ever like amended every aspect of my life to achieve a physical goal. So I set myself that goal, uh, and I put it a year ahead, and I trained for it, and I completed that goal. So t- to to myself, I can say before, as I will soon turn thirty. Um, I know that in the future of my life, if I need to do something that's beyond my physical reach, I have the aptitude to do so, physical or otherwise. I feel like I've given myself that confidence. So that's right. number one. Right. Done. Tick. <laughs> but the, th- the last three are pretty, vi- they're more vague. Um, and I think you could help me with. <laughs> so one, um, at 25 I labeled it uh, to be in command of my sexual powers. But what I mean by that, particularly now at 29, is... Um, to be really aware and comfortable with my identity as a human being, um, where I fit on the spectrum of gender, how I feel about other people, how I express myself sexually to other people. Um, yeah, as, as I see how, how I understand other people's sexuality um, and just being, just being really comfortable with that. Um, at 25, I don't think I could say with any certainty what feminist theory was or, or what LGBTQ stood for. Right. or and, and I've made a real conscious effort to kind of move in that direction. Uh, but I, I lack a tangible, this is a thing that can prove to me that I've achieved that goal. I'm not sure I'm going to get there by 30. Right, that's a tough one. <laughs> that's a tough one. Tangible, like, yeah, tangible uh, evidence that you've achieved uh, these kind of these kind of goals is really very difficult, yeah. I think. Yeah, and I think for this one, the thing I've kind of uh, settled on is, um, for the most part, this is going to continue to evolve through my life, yeah. particularly my own understanding of my physical self. Right. Um, as my body changes, right. as I relate to other people. Um, I, yeah. So I need to just let that go. Um, but... I think increasingly a goal that I think I'm going to set after 30 going forward, I need to give myself a deadline of the year for that, is going to be how do I not just advocate for my own sexual kind of sense, sense of completeness. I don't know how to say that better, but just like comfort and calm with that. Right. But how, how do I, in what ways can I help facilitate that elsewhere? Right. How can I be an advocate for other people or how can I help other people feel more comfortable with how they feel? How do I reduce judgment on the planet? Right. Start with myself and then comes next. Wow. I mean, that's a, that's a, a big goal. <laughs> I don't know how to do that one either. <laughs> no, I don't know how to do that. I mean, I'm, I'm uh, 34 and I don't feel like I've, I achieved that before I was 30. I think I loved turning 30. Really? Turning 30 was ace. Why? What happened? Um, it just was the end of youth in mm. social expectations, which I found incredibly liberating because I didn't enjoy youth. <laughs> I found it hard growing up uh, in general, like the process the way that young people are treated uh not knowing who i was i didn't find my 20s that fun either they were a struggle 
Um, so I looked at turning 30 as like, yes, uh, I'm not young anymore. I'm not, I don't have to hold myself to all of those kinds of expectations that we hold ourselves to when we're young. Um, so I looked at it as a liberating experience. I'm not sure it was. I mean, it was the actual 30th birthday, maybe the actual uh, year, maybe of that, that year. Liberation is something that comes and comes and goes, like in, in in global political terms, but also in personal terms. And so I think that's yeah. the thing about looking at something like sexuality. Yeah. I've had moments, times when I've had more sense of comfort and like the sort of yeah. kind of thing that you're talking about. Yeah. But I've only ever grasped it for short amounts of time, and then it's gone again. And do you know when it? Do you know when you start to? the grip is loosening like do you know why that changes if you no I mean I, th- I don't and I think the thing is that different things always are interacting with your sense of these things anyway yeah, that's true. so it's been easier or more difficult at different times in my say my own uh, understanding of feminism and uh, identity and things like this there have been moments I've been able to feel more comfortable with my, my sexual identity and less comfortable with my sexual identity depending on what kinds of facets of, of human beings I was learning about at that moment in time like for example there's been moments where I've been like very embracing of the sex positivity movement there's been times when I've been very questioning about how that can gloss over lots of other experiences like the experiences of people who've um, survived sexual assault or the uh, experiences of asexual people kind of get completely missed by uh, people going yeah 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 rah 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 sex 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 it's everyone should just be uh, having yeah. as much sex as they want well yeah they should but that part of that means some people don't want to have sex and that's cool too right. um, and that's so all of these different yeah. times like the, and also they, also it relates to you know basically if I'm when I'm having sex with people uh, regularly who are clearly into me that makes me feel much more confident about myself in, in times of my life when that's not happening then I don't yeah. um, so that's kind of dependent on on other factors to give me self like which is crazy, right? Like I totally understand yeah, what you're I wish you mean it didn't. There. I, I want I want to find a way of, of being able to get that that validation purely from my looking in the mirror, like like selfie culture. I, I wanna learn from that. I wanna learn to, I wanna be able to take a, a photo of myself and look at it and go, Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm alright with that. I'm rocking today. Yeah. But I never really managed to feel that. Um, and I'm not sure that women do either, but a lot more women are seem to be kind of feel able to try to to feel better like I don't know if everyone's sharing their selfie feels good about themselves but that's definitely something I'd like men to learn one of many things I'd like men to learn from how women uh, experience the world and express themselves in the world so that's a really great exercise actually have you ever done a bunch of selfies like it's a a great like it's an arbitrary thing in a good in a good way that you're right there are probably I would say there are probably a lot more women on the planet who take selfies it'd be really interesting to think about why that's the case but then why aren't men can we do something around that right well if that, that, that's what men need to liberate ourselves from I think you know as a, as a group like we're, we're the worst in many ways um, but we could benefit so much personally from, from some kind of working on ourselves right I'd like men to work on ourselves more <laughs> I, I'm doing it I guess so maybe I just want to share the pain more how do you work on yourself I don't really know I have these conversations yeah that's really good I look good at myself that. I make shows about myself and interrogate my past um, I bet your partner is helpful. Yeah? Yeah. I think so. My partner feels really helpful in understanding my own self. Right. When it I'm, comes to my It's a witness identity. as well. Like yeah, someone who exactly. can bounce ideas off and yeah. they know elements of you. At the same time, as I've come to know myself more 
and she's come to know herself more we've both ended up kind of changing our opinions of each other yeah. like a lot of my behavior neither me or my partner realized was mental health related uh, when I was younger whereas mm. now you know Jen says sometimes I, used, I, used, I just used to think you'd get really negative and uh, you know angry for periods of time and then not but I didn't see it as being part of a pattern of, of, of mental health and I didn't either I was experiencing it she was trying to deal with it neither of us had the keys to unlock mm, right. now we do right. that makes it easier right um, that's also but isn't it um, funny enough I feel like sometimes when you're very intimate with one person particularly you've been there with that person for a long time they're so important in terms of health I would describe for myself like the pendulum swings on myself and they, they help me remind myself oh you're not at the center right now you're kind of right. But when they, when a person has spent so long with you, sometimes they don't see the bigger picture, right. as you've just beautifully described. Where the, the pendulum swing actually might might actually be a pattern of something bigger that could be addressed elsewhere. Yeah, it is. You know, that's where I just find that interesting. Yeah, no, absolutely. And also, we we got together when we were nineteen. Or I was nineteen, she was eighteen. So we've basically grown up in lots of ways yeah. together, yeah. which means that we've mislearned lessons together that we've then had to unpick. You know, we brought our own experiences of culture together. We didn't, you don't always notice when you're doing the wrong thing. That's the thing until later. And then, you know, I would, I would go back and change a lot of my opinions, my behaviors from early years of this. And would you make those transitions together or would one change and then someone fall behind? We've been lucky that we have made those transitions together, That's but good. that doesn't mean that we haven't made mistakes for periods of time together, which has harmed us both in different ways. Gotcha. We've definitely, we've helped liberate each other but we've also helped oppress each other I would say Um, probably more me uh, because it's it's easy I I think it's it's more dangerous if if you're a man there's just more ways that you're trained to oppress other people than there are if you're a woman there are much more ways to you've learned to oppress yourself I think if you're a woman Um, but I don't know that I don't want to speak for women and you know there's a lot of men who have very different experiences to mine as well like not all men are equal um, <laughs> right <laughs> you know so I mean yeah so your second goal was yeah. is sexuality right? yes. so we've got the, 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 the first one what was I, it I call it or I called it um, I can put anything I set my mind to right that's what I like to call right. it I can achieve out of something on my reach two is being in charge of my sexual powers and the third one the one I hope you probably agree with or empathize with most is um, to be a much better listener and teller of stories. Right. And what I mean under this one is, um, by listener of stories, I mean, first of all, truly listening to another person talk about their existence. But also, for me, I'm particularly 25, hopefully less now, I'm quick to judge a person. Um, and by being more empathetic and, and truly understanding a complete person other than myself, I think I, I'd like to think that I'm growing to give people just a little bit more space to be who they are and work with the authentic person that's before me. And for me, that comes with really understanding who they are and being a good listener to who they are. And on the inverse of that, the better teller of stories, something I'm envious of in, I think, I, how you shaped your life is, uh, and it's just a fault of my own, by the way, um, is I don't give myself the attention or the time to truly understand who I am and how I got here. I, one of the reasons I'm, I'm not on the Spark stage enough 
is because I, I don't take the effort to truly reflect upon myself to talk about what are the nuggets of truth that I understand of myself that I can express to a stranger. I could tell you about those uh, the videos that I made at my birthday parties with my friends <laughs> thanks to the, 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 the budget that my parents gave me in January or whatever. Um, but can I tell you how a teacher or a dance or um, a car accident truly shaped who I am? No. And I, I, really, I really, really, really need to work on that one because I think the best way of um, being able to better understand other people is better understanding yourself. So I, I really need to, I need to work on that one. Dave, help me out. Well, I mean, that's, <laughs> I think to a certain extent that's partly, that's just, you start, the way to tell more stories and to reflect on yourself is to tell more stories <laughs> and reflect on yourself. <laughs> I mean, I think those stories change all the time as well. Like, there's been stories I've told that now I tell completely differently. Really? Like, the, the story of me and my partner getting together, I used to tell much more as a kind of like amusing knockabout how ridiculous I was, whereas now I'll frame it more in kind of... in, in why I was ridiculous, you know? Like, I, I, I understand who I was then much better than I did, you know when I was that age and then shortly after that and you know you change reflection doesn't stop I think once you open up the self-reflection sluice or whatever like it just it, it doesn't stop flowing all over you and that can be a good thing and a bad thing I think I, I'm I'm frequently accused of reflecting on myself too much and overthinking things and worrying too much okay. but I think there is still a value in, in, in that I, I question you know, whether, whether you can do it too much, really. Well, I guess, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, at least you're doing it too much in some people's eyes. Something yeah. that I, I really fail at is carving out the emotional space to think, what was I like at 12? Like, I, I think you do that a lot more than me. And I think that's really cool. Yeah. Because by understanding yourself at 12, you better understand yourself at 34. Right, right. I definitely, there's definitely been a pattern in my life of, of, of kind of going over and over my life and trying to understand it. Then I don't know if that's to do with the fact that so much of, of my life has had, in my early life, my childhood, has been kind of sites of trauma, if you like, even if I don't think I've suffered as much as many, many, many people in this world, etc. I think that makes it hard not to keep going around in a circle, and I don't think that's necessarily the nicest thing. Okay, yeah. I think is it because you repeat the same chapters in terms of revisiting it? Yeah. Does that make sense? I don't, yeah, I, I think so. I, I definitely yeah. think if you look at my fictional work for years, I was going over the kinds of things that I now address in my non-fiction. Oh, wow. um, the first play I ever kind of got produced was about two men getting kidnapped and interrogated about their masculinity. Um, that was before I identified as a feminist. That was before I um, had, had started to look at what had happened to me in my childhood. Um, but I was already talking about that, you know, without, yeah. without really knowing yeah. that that's what I was addressing. And I think that a lot of artists do that, I guess, if you like, and go round and round circles. But I also think a lot of people do that if we get rid of this artist yeah. person uh, binary. <laughs> like, that's what people are doing at, at Spark. The first story I told at Spark... I thought I was telling just because it fitted the theme, but I now realise it was the, the story I most needed to tell absolutely in that moment. And Joe asked me, why are you telling this story? I, I couldn't tell her that at that moment in time. I did not know that it was because it was the most important story for me to tell at that moment. So what, um, was, that, what was that story? Now I have to know. Well, that was the story, of, of, that was a story about my childhood. That was a story about... Um, 
my it was a, a Christmas where I um, misread a present as being uh, to me, but it was actually to my stepdad. And because I opened it, um, I ruined Christmas. I was I was pushed into the Christmas tree and hit. Um, oh very very intense. I didn't even think of it intense. You don't think of your life as intense because you just think, oh, that happened to me. I'm just describing it. But now I often realise when I say things out loud at Spark, it's like, oh no. Not everybody knows what that's like, and actually, some and, and people who do, this might be a triggering uh, thing to say. So there's an extra responsibility to suddenly realise when you, when you, when you understand that your your youth was in some ways uh, had its, had forms of child abuse in it. Um, you then have to realise that you have a responsibility to other people who've had those kinds of experiences when you talk about it. Um, but you still need to talk about it because people don't know otherwise. Yeah. So, but but yeah, I mean, I and it was also, but it was about more than that. It was about having a dual childhood. It was about having a childhood which, if I think back on it, is completely miserable, or if I think back on it, is completely wicked, right? It's completely mm. w- wonderful. Like those two different things mm. exist in my childhood at the same time. Both of them are true, mm. and so I guess that's what what I was trying to talk about. And that's, I guess. Uh, as an artist that is kind of people who listen to this show will be bored of me saying that I, I always refer to this quote by Niels Bohr the physicist uh, which is there are trivial truths and there are profound truths and a, a trivial truth the opposite of that is a lie the opposite of a profound truth is a truth that both things exist at the same time oh, wow. and I think that f- fundamentally that's that's what I talk about as an artist and as a storyteller I guess yeah. it's always what I'm interested in hearing someone expressing their truth about something like really really passionately yeah. so that that it becomes a truth that you know there's nuance there's another side yeah. to it there's another way of thinking of it and I get and I so get that and I guess uh, what I really like about you and I I really want to have give I'd like to think I I, ha- I could do what you do to a certain extent is um, revisit stories and think about that that broader truth or right. like that more I think like you just said you make it up on stage and just tell a story and you don't it doesn't click until much later of why that was so important right. um, I don't give myself often the permission to do that to myself or other people let alone be like why, why did I do why did I make that behavior at 24 or 17 or 12 um, and what, what does that signify what are what are the the two ways to look at my history or a person's story etc does that yeah, make sense absolutely I don't do that extra self-reflection well, I think you, I, I should think, work on that. Well, I, th- I think it's to me. It sounds like you probably already do this, but you think you don't. No, because it sounds like you're sort of like judging <laughs> your own ability to do it kind of more I'm, harshly than is probably accurate. I'm very, I'm very good at telling myself it's a thing I need to do. Um, what I haven't committed fully enough is, um, or maybe, but uh, is uh, is. Putting pen to paper, or like taking action against this criticism myself. Does that make sense? Right. I'm, not, I'm just being like, oh, Jen, you're not doing the thing, and, but I'm not like addressing the thing. I'm just saying that I'm doing the thing badly. Um, so I need to work on it. Well, working on it's good. I think working on it's good. Um, I also think taking stock of what you've achieved so far, though, is also good. And it sounds True. like you've you've made some made some made some moves in working on yourself. I mean. I liked there's a there's a line in a bright eyes song about I guess about a relationship which is something along the lines of I keep working on the problem that we know we'll never solve of love love's uneven remainder our lives are only fragments of a whole right and I think it's good yeah and I I think that's a that's a thing like the the, the 
we, we never find the answers to these things. The, the process of asking the questions is what's important. Mm, that's true. Um, and so I don't think anyone's... You're never going to tell a definitive story about yourself because you're, you're, you carry on happening until you die. That's true. And after you die, other people tell your story and they're telling it through filters and you're telling your story through filters. But, but asking, looking, not being afraid to look at these things, I think is, is good. Yes. Why did you decide to work on yourself? <laughs> I have one more. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Do the, and then we'll do, do the more. I'm, I'm not good at maths, so I often, <laughs> I often lose count. Do, There's do one, the one more. more. Absolutely. And it's the, it's the, um, it's kind of the lamest one because I feel most people have this one, but it is to live more for right now. So, particularly at 25, and I'm much better at this than I used to be. Was, I'm, I'm an optimizer. I'm the kind of person who goes down to the tube and knows exactly where on the train you need to be so that when I get off, I'm at the right place. Right. To, I, like, I'm always thinking, how can I use this exact moment to prepare for the next moment? Yep. Um, and not just like, hold on, let's just, let's just live for right now. Uh, I'm, and particularly at 25, I was, very, I was so much more angsty about um, how, how do, what, where on the planet and what oxygen do I want to be breathing by the time I'm 30? Why that was a big weight right. on my shoulder. The future. The and future. The, right. So I have made a real effort to think about I'm getting better. I'm, I'm not I'm definitely not at present moment all the time, yeah. but I've definitely let go of the future a lot. And I think for me, um, a lot of that came to, was not in my own control necessarily, a lot of that came down to. I just feel like I I fell in love and I met the partner whom I'm going to walk through life with. And I think that really showed me that my compass is more important than the map I'm trying to to sketch on. Does that make sense? Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that was really out of my control, but it but happened in this in this life chapter between 25. Uh, it has forced me to think a little bit more. Let's just do right now really well. Right. That's better. That's more important than tomorrow. No, well, that's, that's interesting. That's nice. I mean, you 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 realize I'm sure that that those number three and number four. Yeah. Uh, contradicts each other. Oh, tell me why. Uh, well, because that's this is the thing to reflect on yourself mm. is to look at your past. It's to not be in the moment. Mm. To look at your past. To also to be aware of the moment, but also to also be able to think of the future. Because you're you're talking that's about true. yourself as a narrative, whereas to be in the present moment is kind of about performance. It's about like forgetting about all of those other things. And I say this as someone who has both those goals myself. And who I, I really want to live much more in the present moment, and that's living in the present moment is also connected, I think, to sexuality. Yeah, uh, it's yes, also connected it to, 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 the, to the racing kind of yeah. thing that you did to yourself. Um, and I, one of the things I, I, one of the reasons I make this show is to be in the present moment. When we're talking now, this is me having to be in the present moment. Later, I'll edit it and I'll worry about the past and the future and how people <laughs> might interpret this word or that word and those sorts of things. And I'll, I'll edit it, but I'll edit it in the present moment as well. I'll, in five years' time, I'll listen back and go, no, I chose the wrong words to leave in and the wrong, the wrong you know, no, I know whatever. What you but, but, but living in the present moment, that's what I get from being on stage and it's what I get from recording these kind of conversations. So to give you advice on how to achieve that, yeah. tell more stories at Spark. <laughs> like actually throw yourself into the uh, okay, yeah. into the into that into that moment. So weirdly, to, to 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 you can even though they contradict each other, you can do them at the same time of like be in the present moment on stage at Spark 
like really? talk to that audience yeah. tell them when you get up there I'm sure you found if you tell one story you'll have this experience a little bit you kind of get up there and you, you, you connect with an audience and then you suddenly realise all the stuff you've got to explain to them to make your story make sense and this is why so many people at Spark say oh um it's not going to be very long. My story's not going to be very long. Anyone who says that, they generally go over time. And the reason is because they think, oh, yeah, I want to tell this anecdote. And they don't get up, think, when I get up there, oh, no, I've got to say my parents were having a divorce at that time. I've got right. to say oh, this context. thing or that thing. Right. Um, and that's and that can be dangerous. And yeah. I, I mean, I try to tell a new story every month at Hackney, and I don't always get those first stories good or not because they're not crafted. I, have, I crafted that risk story, and I do believe in crafting stories, but I don't believe in in setting the example at an open mic of a crafted story I think that would put the bar too high so I try to make it raw and and, and work it out almost at the time although I do I have an ego I don't like it when things don't go well so I try to prep it you need need people to think you're the MC for a reason right 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 I don't want people to think I'm rubbish but at the same time I don't want people to think I'm uh, sort of yeah 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 yeah, Yeah. a performer yeah and it's not they haven't got access to it but like it definitely is that the, the ones I think are going to be easy are never the ones that are easier. The ones I think are not going to connect with people tend to, to to actually turn out when I get on stage to, yeah. to be something. I don't know, but but yeah. You but, really knocked me with that. You're absolutely right, though. The last two are in contradiction, but come down to some bigger truth about myself as you bring that paradox truth yeah. back before. But I think it's in, both those things are important. It's so important to be in the present. There's so much, so much, so much problems in in the world with people not being present yeah. in moments. At the same time, so many terrible things happen in the world because people are present in that moment without thinking about the consequences of what they do and they don't do. And if I think about my mum, for example, she's someone I wish could could be outside of the present moment mm-hmm. because when she feels something, she feels it in the moment, and that means that she. Uh, treats people in that way she's feeling rather than is able to stop and have some kind of perspective on that and and me with my mental health issues that's something I need to learn is to step back from a moment and see it from the outside and and not be in that moment at the same time part of my mental health issues are to do with obsessing uh, endlessly about moments in the past or about the future and so I need to be in the moment more also for my mental health it's weird. So how do you how do you navigate that? I don't know. I mean, if you find out the answer, please do tell me because this is something I, I I never know. I have years. I've had years of my life. I felt like I'm in touch with myself, and then years where I've not. And, and is that in those years have they been because you've been thinking about past and future more? Yeah, all life experiences have, have not allowed me to be my authentic self. Like when we when the, uh, the words authentic self are buzzwords that kind of ring off some alarm bells in people for a reason it's only people as you said earlier on who have the opportunity to think about ourselves that can Um, many people have to just worry about living food shelter all of those very very basic things of humanity when I've been closer to that when I've been poorer when I've been then I've been more depressed I've been more stressed out I've been more anxious I've been less able to be live in the moment but I've also been less able to stop thinking about the future in the past like like those are the moments. Um, so yeah, years, it is a real luxury when yeah, you put it that way, isn't the, it? The years I've been the most authentically myself have also been the years I, I think I've achieved the highest level of privilege in terms of like, financial or work or whatever those things. Even if I haven't understood that at the time, um, that's really yeah. good, man. I totally believe you there. 
Yeah, and I think yeah. that's, the, that's the danger, like not a danger. I think everybody should have the luxury to worry about our authentic selves. Yeah. But, but that's part of what you're talking about. How do you facilitate people to think about their sexuality in the kinds of ways you would you would like them to? Give you know, it's it, that ultimately those questions sadly come down to getting rid of poverty, getting rid of you know uh, all of the different isms that are out there. Not the not, so the, not the good ones, but the, the bad ones. Uh, getting rid of those things, and I I totally understand. Yeah. yeah. And the one people who get to be those things the most are the ones who get rid of those things the most from their lives. Like. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I really agree with the point that there are people on the planet whom uh, daily survival is is put in is certainly much more important than thinking about how do I express myself sexually or what are the issues that I care about. Um, I completely agree with that. And there, are, I am always amazed at the the lucky few. Those from a place of privilege, shall we say, or, or those that have, or those that are not, particularly those that are not, who, uh, who come to a truth that then they, they advocate very hard for those empowered or, or not to be able to, um, to strive for. Right, no, that's really true. And, and yeah. that's another thing to say as well. It, the, it's also easy to think of people who don't have that uh, luxury or privilege or whatever we want to call it as not having... Um, you know, wild, passionate inner lives and feelings around all of these things, they do absolutely do. Right, it's right. just their lives make it much harder for them to ex- express or think about those things. And when they do conceptualize them, no one listens to them. Mm. Like those are the groups, people who come from more marginalized groups are, are, are the ones who I find have the most to say potentially about these issues, really. Um, but we're, we're very rarely listen to those groups and that's one of the things I like about Spark yeah, uh, one of the yeah. things I liked about the night that you ran yeah. was and the, you ran with it yeah, yeah. exactly yeah. those kind of nights where, where it's 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 people who have the luxury or privilege facilitating other people who don't have so much of that to express themselves in a way that can reach people who don't hear those kind of ideas you know that's the that's the holy grail for me in terms of non non-fiction work yeah totally uh, that's, that's you know that's what I think sometimes I can get through getting better acquainted Although not in one episode where I talk as much as it's in this. <laughs> no, <one>. no, no. <laughs> Can I tell you a thing that I think is really awesome? Did. So uh, the thing I nerded out with most at school, probably, um, or my studies, is participatory storytelling. So how do you get a bunch of people who are related to a similar subject to equally have a voice in that in that issue? So I once spent a year in Boston's Chinatown encouraging people of all walks of life who lived in that neighborhood who did not, none of them spoke English, to participate in dialogue in um, the future of Boston's Chinatown. So what are the things that you want to see improved in this in this area? How do you feel about being, for most of them, uh, like new, new to America? Uh, how do you feel about being classified as generically Chinese in a place that does not understand in a city that does not understand where you're from at all. Um, And how can photography, how is your ability to visually express what you want to say enable anyone of any age and of any language to contribute to that issue? So So I put together like a really big like photo exhibition of all these people's voices through visuals um, contributing to the thought of like what is the future of Chinatown? And it, it, it is 
that is a visual form of storytelling, but a very I like to think of it egalitarian or more egalitarian than um, other forms of storytelling with video or interpretive dance or ballet or whatever. Or right. I guess some some um, where you'd be surprised how many people are comfortable taking a photograph of the things they see. Like like that experience. I love participatory storytelling in the ways that Spark can be particularly in the, like in the show that you produce and the show that I produce, where you just give people a platform to say, say what you want. You don't need a lot of coaching to get up there and tell something that's true. And the collective reflection of the stories that are told, either through the photography or, or someone on a microphone, can, can, give you, can give everybody else a little bit of a thought process on mm, what's going on there. What is the issue being discussed? And ideally, for the storyteller themselves to feel like they've contributed to this bigger thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I love that. I think stuff. it's interesting as well. Both of those nights, when you think about the strengths of those nights, it's not. It wasn't just because of the fact that the people on stage were telling their stories. It was the fact that the audience was made up of people who had similar yeah. experiences as well. And not just those people. There was a mix in both yeah. nights yeah. of people who were, you know not from those backgrounds being educated and there was people from those backgrounds being seen having their yeah. stories shared and, and, and those connections and also the thing that Spark does that I think is really powerful and I think we need more of at the moment particularly is that the more specific you are about your identity and your story the more universal that can sometimes become um, and when we try to be universal actually that, that erases totally. uh, difference whereas talking about difference can actually show us our connections and our similarities um, and, and that can be really powerful but it's a harder work isn't it it's, it is it's getting it's getting specific about yourself yeah getting specific or asking a storyteller to be but like Kevin gave you the feedback like paint the harder picture yeah. of your experience so that people can relate to the dialogue you do or, you know what I yeah. mean it's going it's digging that extra little bit yeah it's hard no it is hard oh. and it's and it's challenging in a good way like there was a spark I don't know if you made it but there was we did a spark we did we've done two spark uh, collaborations with mind the first one was about mental health issues and that was I, I found that very liberating as a person with mental health issues and also it's just great being from an organisation where three different hosts of Spark told stories at that night about oh, their mental health issues yeah. and being a, an organisation that is, sees that as a strength to talk about your flaws and your, your vulnerabilities but, but the second one we did was about was called Multicultural Minds and it was trying to, to speak to different cultural experiences of mental health issues and I and initially I didn't want to host it because I'm a white man and uh, when I did decide to host it I was like I'm not going to tell a story and then the more I kind of was talked to about it and the more I thought about it the more I realised that actually being challenged as a white person to talk about your cultural background is something that we're never challenged to do and that to, to look at my cultural background is to is to admit to lots of complicated things about that like there is absolutely no way that I can look at my cultural heritage and not see uh, imperialism and the British Empire as being a crime that people of my own lineage you know whatever that it means in some ways it means nothing to me but I benefit from it um, look having to look at that stuff um, is important and, and you know that, that has an, an impact on how I relate to mental health uh, and all of those sorts of things you know um, you know, my, my stepdad was from a, a white Belfast background. That meant that he had very stifling views on masculinity, on sexuality, on, on things like that, which has affected my mental health. You know, people like to point to other cultures and say they've got bad attitudes to mental health, whereas us white people, we all go to therapy. No, and that isn't true, and it's, it's much more complicated than that. 
being challenged to, to do that is yeah. important. And to say it out loud, and as <laughs> bringing up the point you said earlier about it being a hosting the Hacking Night, your like commitment to make sure you're telling true stories about yourself, building that trust between storyteller and listener. Right. I think it's really great that you got up and kind of exposed truths about your own experience of mental health. Yeah, well, it's being who you are. Well, that's the great thing about Spark, awesome. right? Because yeah. everybody ends up strangers talk to each other, not in small talk, and that is vib- yeah. vi- vibrant and. You know, when you're talking about being better listeners and, and com- conversationalists, like that's the thing. I think one of the big things in the way of that is small talk. Like, I don't know how to have conversations with people when I don't have a mic on. Because <laughs> when I have conversations with people without a mic on, I can't just ask them stuff about themselves, and they can't just tell me stuff about themselves. We have to talk about, you know, the weather. How are you? That's the worst. Because I don't know if I should answer with the truth. Like. I, I, I bumped into my niece today and she said, how are you? And I, 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 I managed to say, you know, pretty good today. Because like literally for the last week I've been in a deep pit of like anxiety and depression and it's been really hard. So I don't want to, but I don't want to lay that on someone when they're just casually saying, how are you? If someone really wants to know, I'm very happy to talk and I want to hear them. If they have their life experiences that they want to tell me about, that, that they, you know, that they want to express, but we can't do that in formal conversation. Like, no, it's not I know. allowed. Well, you honor true conversation, which is really, which is really great about you. But the art of existing in today's society involves a bit of a dance around yeah. just the noise of talk. Well, particularly in the UK, I think in some ways, like one of the things that often gets said to me, and I don't know what your opinion as an American will be of this, is people often say to me, "You're you're really American. Your attitude is really American." And what they mean is, I talk about my emotions and my feelings. That is literally <laughs> what they mean. So, like, like I, I'm not pro the anti-Americanism that happens in this country. I think I have a problem with your government. I have a problem with my government. So, what the hell would that make us have a problem with each other? Um, but 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 this idea that we should be ashamed of like talking about ourselves of, of all of that yeah. stuff of this this stiff upper lip uh, culture which goes back to the empire which you know the empire even hurt the white people um, but not very much don't get me wrong but culturally speaking we've trained people not to talk about them themselves we have to cover it over we have to look at like we have to perform ourselves for the class system and perform ourselves for. Uh, gender, the gender system, you know? Why do you think Briti- classic British culture implies a distance in conversation? I mean, I don't know. I think maybe that's the only way you can live with yourselves if you're doing what you do to the world that we did to the, to the world. I mean, you have to kind of codify it so you're distant from it, and part of that is not expressing. It's also to do with property and all stuff like that, like, like Jane Austen, you know, like, the, 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 you didn't want to give, show your hand because... You were, you were, you you would have been property at that moment in time, and to reveal yourself is to potentially damage that property. I mean, I think even for men, they were slightly property. Like you're, you, you know, you you traded on your family's good name and all of that stuff. But then that also, we imported that to America. You guys, you guys have, have gone a little bit away from it over time. But I, I think it's overstated how much you guys are in touch with your feelings. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> Uh, um, being being a southerner, uh, polite conversation is a requirement among complete strangers, right. and it, but it has a it, it is a, it is inherently extremely distant. 
Hey Dave, how are you? Oh, I'm fine. How are you? That exchange is a, we would not be able to do anything else until how are you had, had happened. Right. And I'm fine to see only appropriate answer, by the way. Right. Nothing else. But it isn't so. But Southern is, culture is another culture which has a legacy that it is having to disguise of itself in order to live with itself, I would say. I mean, you know, no offense to yourself or other Southerners. Like, I'm saying this from the point of view of being someone who's benefiting from the British Empire despite myself. So I don't hold it against you, but I mean, it's, I think it's interesting to look at that, like what places where people are codified in how we talk. I'd be curious to know if you, do you know any about, about this in any other culture besides the United States or the UK? Do you know? I don't know, you know. It'd be interesting. I have a lot more friends from America. I feel more allowed to, to prescribe my opinion about <laughs> America. Do you have any idea of, uh, are there any cultures that you think, wow, they only have authentic conversations? Oh man, I... I'd love to know if yeah. someone knows I want to be a part of that culture but I'd probably ruin it by, <laughs> by going and joining it <laughs> I just I guess I wonder is um, could, could anybody sitting in front of you right now probably agree with what you just said is there is there truly any is there truly any culture out there that uh, doesn't codify language yeah I think it's interesting to, to, to look at that isn't it mm. I mean if you look at like um, the beginnings of agriculture and stuff like that like when we when we started codifying capitalism when we started having to have different jobs like women had to stay in the in the villages and and, and men went hunting for, for, for whatever the, the practical reasons that grew up yeah. out of early civilization probably have had a lot to do with that and yeah. lang language itself is a not even an adequate tool for communicating our emotions and our experiences to each other is it i mean no. language is itself both a liberator and a cage, you know, like it's very hard to, yeah. to work out how to talk to people authentically because everybody brings different connotations yeah. to every single word you use. And yeah. I'm trying to change most of the ways that I talk. Really? Uh, in in the words you use? Yeah, I mean, definitely, definitely. I, I believe in, I believe language evolves, so don't get me wrong, I'll, I'll use the unisex version of guys and not feel like I'm betraying feminism. No. But I also think that um, language is, a, is, a, is violent. I, I've experienced the violence of, of masculinity being policed growing up. I've experienced kind of homophobia and stuff like that, even though I'm not uh, gay, although I don't feel like that even needs to be said, apart from uh, just to, to recognise that other people have it harder than me. Um, but, but, like, that's the thing, that, that words matter, they hurt, and changing our language matters. The words that my dad uses that were politically correct for him, because he's 92 years old, are not the words that I choose to use. Right. Um, but I also respect that for his generation he was progressive, even as seeing that even as a progressive he is still, even as a feminist, anti-racist man, uh, he still has um, sexist and anti uh, and, and racist views in the mildest liberal use of the word. Right, because right. Um, society evolves. I yeah, think that's what you're, and yeah, so I've got to learn the right language. I've changed my language. You know, I use the word sex worker now, and I wouldn't have used that in the mm, past. Yeah. Even though I don't think I would have changed my judgment of the right, individuals because right. I never judged sex workers. I I would. Yeah, have used the wrong words and now yeah. I know that that's wrong but it doesn't mean that I would judge anyone who uses the wrong word if they don't know yet there's a conversation that needs to be had around that and I also think that changing our language can be a we have to be cautious because it can exclude kind of people who don't know the cues yet who haven't learned the like I don't want I don't want language to be used in a mannered way where people just tick the boxes of the right words yeah. and don't feel the the actual 
content underneath yeah. it. It's really complicated language. Yeah. But I, I do try to change my language and autocorrect helps. Um, <laughs> in in written language, I've got it to, to change various words. Oh, very I can't cool. use every time I write the word mental it changes it to ridiculous, for example. <laughs> um, which is dangerous because I'm nearly always um, I'm writing mental health issues and so I so frequently nearly tweet you know ridiculous health issues which I don't want to do but that's so that's a really cool thing that you do well you I, can do it for that but it, I can't mm, hack my verbal no, use I can't stop saying stupid and uh, crazy and all of these words that I don't want to use because they're inherently judgmental of people and used to in Okay, you but know. you a you recognize it, yeah. and b you can work on it with time. And c in a hundred years, when your grandchildren <laughs> come talk to you, they're gonna say, "Wow, Dave did his best," and I appreciate the man and the words he uses today. Well, it would have to be my um, my niece's grandkids <laughs> because I'm not having any kids. Okay, but yeah, fine, fine. for sure. I mean, I hope so. That be patient with yourself. Society like... evolves. Uh, I try to evolve myself. Why did you decide to evolve yourself? Um. I just... <laughs> the frivolous answer is, when I was a very small girl, uh, I was quite convinced I was going to die at 30. I couldn't tell you why I thought that, but um, through most of my life, I've assured everyone, including myself, that I would be dead at 30. And five years up to the, the death point, I thought, maybe I should be a, com- a good person before I can follow the grave. I'm now, um, with confidence assured, that unless I'm struck by lightning, I will not be dead at 30. Um, I feel like I've been given spiritual permission to, to live on. But, uh, yeah, I don't think I have a good reason for... Um, I don't think I have, like, a... I don't remember why at 25 I said I need to really work myself to 30, except for the point that, man, I should just be a complete person before I'm an adult. Well, I don't think there's such a thing as adult. (laughs) I was working with some young carers the other day who were like people who've had to grow up before their time, um, you could say. And they were sort of talking about how they've had to become more adult, um, you know, to to deal with things, but they don't feel adult. They don't feel, feel immature. And I was like, that's an adult like we, we feel immature inside we just behave differently on the outside because we have responsibilities that's you've already got there that's sad because it's rubbish being an adult um, and hopefully you'll get an opportunity to be less adult in the future but yeah. but that is an adult I think yeah it's, a fu- it's another one of those funny words right yeah. <laughs> we bring all these connotations that don't make any sense Absolutely. thanks for revealing the, the deeper truth of adulthood there though <laughs> I can, we are ourselves I wish someone had told me that when I was a kid the adults don't know what the fuck is going on. <laughs> like, that's the, the, the essential thing to know. Particularly when you're a kid, because you've got no power. Adults are in charge of everything. They tell you everything. It's so important to know that they don't know what they're doing. Um, I mean, which is not to say that I don't... Collectively, I, they usually know yeah, what's going I'm on. I'm pro-children having boundaries set by <laughs> right. adults until they know better. Right. But they need to have an accurate understanding of what they're dealing with. And right. the older the child gets, the more they have to understand that adults know nothing. Right. Like, early on, it's pretty essential they believe that the adult knows that fire burns and stuff like that. But once they get to a kind of more able to have their own conversation, that's when you still have to at least start sticking that in. And particularly because... um, it's not the you're not the only adult I think as a parent that's going to come into contact with those kids and mm. they need to know at school that they might be getting to toxic stuff they need to yeah. know that you know, you, they need to be critical thinkers right critical uh, yeah absolutely yeah. I mean, 
Yeah. So this has been a real pleasure getting better yeah, acquainted with you. Totally. It's, it's like the time is flying. And in fact, we're, we're, we're in danger of being late to our own Spark meeting, which we're going to after this. Yeah. Um, but it's been a real pleasure getting better acquainted with you. I'm painfully aware I've talked more than no. often I do. But the thing is, that's the thing when you don't know someone, you do end up talking more. And also it's early in the morning. I'm, it's harder for me to not talk early in the morning. I have less... Uh, ability it's not early it's not by any means actually early but it's a saturday morning kind of midday ish uh but i mean you know yeah. i almost feel like i'm still asleep so. i've had an amazing time <laughs> spending time with you yeah, learning about you and with being you. able to share so thank you for having me yeah well thank you the last question i ask yeah. everybody is do you have anything to plug um only please come to Spark. It's an amazing community and you meet really inspiring people and you have the chance to tell truth if you want to. Absolutely. So that's stories.co.uk or at SparkLDN on Twitter. Um, my night is on the second Monday of every month. Uh, look out for nights produced by Jen in the future. And look out for stories told by Jen in the future. I'm looking forward to hearing them too. So the last thing I ask my guests to do is yeah. to say goodbye to the audience. It's been, I hope you've enjoyed this time. Uh, I've really enjoyed it. Uh, take care. Have a good day. Bye, everyone. Bye. Spark London are also putting on monthly workshops at the Hackney Attic, which are run by me and other members of the Spark London team. They happen on the first Saturday of every month at the moment at the Hackney Attic. Uh, they run from two o'clock till five o'clock and we give you a full background in storytelling in how to find your own story in it's a very practical workshop about kind of getting your stories out so if you've ever wanted to tell a true story live on stage but want a bit of help before you do so then come along and if you've never thought of that idea but it sounds interesting after hearing our conversation today then please do come and tell people about it it'd be really helpful to tell lots of people about it you can find out more information about that and all things spark related at stories.co.uk to find out about my masculinity show that's the most recent stand-up tragedy podcast you can listen to the whole show in its entirety and you can also find out more about it at www.mansplainingmasculinity.co.uk you can find getting better acquainted on facebook and on twitter it's at gba podcast thanks very much for listening and remember there are lots of ways to get better acquainted. In January 2016, I discovered a mystery and decided to make a podcast about it. It's coming out in the autumn and it's called The Family Tree. I can't explain it. I've gone through every possible explanation and none of them are possible explanations. It's important to remember some sympathy, I think, at this point, because the mystery, the strangeness, with that mystery, with that strangeness, we, we might lose sight of the fact that there's human beings involved. Uh, it's very difficult to know where to start. So he had no arm. But the body had two. But the body had, had two. two. It can't have been the same body. What is your stake in this? What I know how to do is to talk to people that's the only way I can really think of, of, of approaching this mystery. I don't understand why everyone in the family is just being a bit strange about it. If ghosts do exist, I think they wouldn't look 
how they looked when they when they died. They'd go back to how they looked in life. So, so Dad's ghost would have an arm. If everyone's running away in one direction, away from an injustice, he would run straight towards it. It doesn't feel right. The image you have of your parents at that age isn't yeah. necessarily the person that that person actually if is. If you disappeared and then we found your body and it wasn't you... It says in this, in this Metro story, the family declined to comment on the mystery. I mean, who's the dad or you'd spent so much time with if your dad is a body that can't be the dad that you grew up with? It doesn't make any sense. All of those years, was he dead or alive, they didn't know. Now, they know that he was dead... But that's not answered the question. It's another question, right? You're asking a whole bunch of strangers really personal questions. And I know people have agreed, so that's that's fine. But then recording it, I don't know what your motives are. It's sort of a little bit creepy. The Family Tree Podcast dot co dot UK.